I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From Decrypt.co, this is the Decrypt Daily and my name is Matthew Aaron. Today on the show, I welcome Charles Hoskinson, co-founder and CEO of IOHK and Cardano. And we're going to talk about collaboration and teamwork in the crypto industry. Coming up today on the Decrypt Daily. Remember, remember Friday, the 20th of November, 2020. I'm going to get straight into it today because two reasons. Number one, long form podcast. I don't want this to go until tomorrow. And two, well, the crypto prices are all over the place. I refreshed it. It was 18.4. I refreshed it again. It was 18.5. I refreshed it again. BTC was 18.3. I refreshed it again. 18.5 again. So let's just get into the crypto prices. Ah, but before I get into the crypto prices, I'm going to try to come to you seven days a week with weekend format podcast as well i'm going to come to you at 9 a.m give you the prices some headlines and just tell you what's going on three to five minute shows over the weekend while we're in a bull if the price goes down below eighteen thousand, you're not going to see me on the weekends if it's above eighteen thousand five hundred, you're going to see me on the weekends so i'll see you tomorrow as well here are those crypto prices here comes the money here we go money talks and I'm recording this at 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Bitcoin is sitting at $18,547, up 3.5% from yesterday. Ethereum, 506.93, up 7.3% from yesterday. Litecoin, 82.65, up just a little bit from yesterday, but losing its number five total market cap spot to Chainlink, which is sitting at 14.12, up 3.7% from yesterday. And XRP, 31.7 cents, up 6% from yesterday. Total market cap jumping $20 billion from yesterday at $520.3 billion with a BTC dominance of 66%. Now let's just jump into that conversation with Charles. You guys enjoyed this conversation and I will see you tomorrow morning. Thank you so much for having me on, Matt. I appreciate it. 100%. Thank you very much for coming on the show. And one of the things that I want to talk to you about today is, you know, I think that one of your ideas of having people work together in the blockchain space, not just be it all me, all mine, me, I'm going to win, but work with other companies, other blockchains and other people that are coming into the crypto space to get this moving forward. And I think that's just, uh, honestly, it's kind of a revolutionary idea, even though it shouldn't be. Can you tell me about your idea with that? Well, I mean, it's it's like common sense in every other industry. Could you imagine Wi-Fi if your Wi-Fi only worked with uh, the particular manufacturer? You'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, your Samsung phone is only going to work with the Samsung Wi-Fi router or your iPhone is only going to work with the Apple router. Like, what kind of a mess would that be? If it was up to Apple, that's exactly how it would be. Exactly. And so, unfortunately, industries tend to do that in their nascent age. Uh, for example, Microsoft tried to do this in the 1990s. You know, they dominated... And, they had ActiveX and they didn't really support web standards. You actually had to have broken cascading style sheets to be able to actually get your website to render correctly on uh, Internet Explorer. It was a dark time. And, you know, new industries, they, they tend to believe, oh, maximalism, where everything about my ecosystem is what matters and vendor lock-in is what matters. But always, 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 you get a renaissance when you focus on the consumer and the consumer's ability to seamlessly move from one system to another system. And then you make the case that you're the best platform for one or a collection of things that the consumer cares about. 
And then you go from whatever customers you can scratch up with maximalism to all of the customers in the space. So you end up making more money uh, and you end up actually growing larger. A great example is Microsoft today is worth $1.6 trillion. Microsoft at its all-time high during the height of their monopolistic behavior was worth $600 billion during the dot-com boom. So, you know, it shows you the power of openness and the power of interoperability. And so we as an industry need to push in that direction. We need to start talking about how do we move users, value, identity, and data between systems. And when you build dApps and you issue tokens, those dApps and tokens don't get locked in to just one system. They can float around to other systems and uh, anybody can use them. And that's how we're going to get to a billion users. You know, I have a question about that. And I, I think that the very big juxtaposition with this, and I'm a skeptic, by the way, and I'm a cynic. So I, I to do this with Charles Hoskinson, I, I think it's probably pretty dumb, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, Apple is its own ecosystem. It loves its own ecosystem. It wants to tie you in there as much as possible. And it is a true trillion dollar company today. But they, they're, but they're they actually it. still do actually have open standards. For example, all the programming languages are open source. Apple was the first to embrace um, HTML5 against Flash, which was an open standard instead of a proprietary standard. Uh, Safari uh, is an example of uh, a web standards following framework. So they do have an ecosystem they've certainly built. And when you get trapped within it, you, they, they certainly can absorb a lot of value out of you. But Apple still does interoperate and communicate with other devices. And it's actually quite easy to be cross-platform these days. We, for example, write applications on iOS as we do Android. So there are varying degrees of uh, you know, f following of that faith. And you're always going to have people that want to control and close everything off more so. But if you look at the industry as a whole, like the big people who are really thinking about the future, for example, Corda, uh, Hyperledger Fabric, these things, they're all starting to become open source and they're all starting to collaborate with each other. And as a consequence, they're getting real adoption. And every single time you do this, you actually get more users. A Microsoft, a great example with .NET, it was closed sourced, it was strictly Windows. And then suddenly they open sourced the framework. Now they have 5 million developers in the .NET ecosystem. And it's one of the fastest growing platforms and it's kicking Java in the teeth because it's a better technology plus it's a great open ecosystem. Uh, so uh, this is where I think we need to be at as an industry. And you always have to be aware, like why do people want to lock you in? Do they want to lock you in because it's best for the consumer and for the developer and for your business? Or do they want to lock you in because it's best for their token price, regardless if it's to your benefit or not? Uh, and we have to get away from that. I like how you said, uh, is it benefits for the token price? I mean, as a novice, I want to really clarify what we're talking about here. Are, you, are we talking about the BEP2 token? Are we talking about the Zill token? Are we talking about the these people that are coming out with their own specific blockchains and forcing you to build on that and trade within their ecosystems? Yeah, so Ethereum is a great example of that. You know, it, it, on one hand, they say we're open source, we love everybody. But on the other hand, they're like, build on Ethereum, stay on Ethereum and get locked into Ethereum and use Ether as your token. It's, it's, you're saying two contradictory things at the same time. So at the end of the day, I, this is infrastructure. And so if I'm writing a DAP, whether that be MakerDAO or Chainlink or whatever it is, you know, the question I should be asking as the DAP author is what is my operating cost? What is the quality I'm offering to the customer? What's my performance? What's my user experience? And is the infrastructure that I'm running this on actually giving me a, a good intersection of these things? Just like if you write a website, you could run you know, that on Amazon, you can run that on Azure, you can run that on any platform, right? And you're gonna migrate from one to the other if, uh, if you find out that the uh, costs are too high or the experiences are, are bad, okay? And we, we've done that actually with some of our web infrastructure when we found we were paying too much for 
uh, computation and data and network services. And it was an easy transition. And so that's the age we need to go to, where if you're going to compete, you compete on performance and cost, and you compete on quality and user experience, but you don't compete on vendor lock-in where it's just simply too expensive and hard to migrate from one system to another system. That's what Microsoft tried to do in the 1990s. And it's the temptation of the cryptocurrency space right now. And we see a lot of platforms pushing that direction. Is that why IOHK is uh, announcing several partnerships so far this year? Yeah, yeah, we're really interested in interoperability. First, we think that's a hallmark of third generation cryptocurrencies is this capacity to talk to other systems. And we write protocols. We wrote an SOK paper where we systemize knowledge about cross-chain communication. Uh, so we just wanted to understand what you could and could not do in that framework. We also wrote several protocols uh, for sidechains. For example, we wrote the NEPA PALS protocol, the non-interactive proofs of proof of work. That was the uh, work of Dionysus Zindros uh, and Agalos, our chief scientist. And uh, we've developed also uh, proof of stake sidechain protocols. And what these basically allow you to do is move value and information from one system to another system. Now we've gotten to the stage where we're actively going around to other great ecosystems like Litecoin and probably Bitcoin Cash and others, and perhaps Ethereum Classic, and saying, hey, you should adopt this technology because if you adopt it, then it's easy for your system to talk to other systems and for tokens to move between the platforms and you can have wrapped assets inside your system. That's really the first steps of interoperability, that connecting tissue that allows the systems to talk to each other. And by the way, you get new features and functionality from this. So let's say you have Bitcoin. Bitcoin's likely not going to upgrade to have very sophisticated smart contracts. So you could move Bitcoin and use them to feel and power smart contracts on a different ledger. And the people who maintain consensus there, instead of just being paid inflation in one token, they could get transaction fees and multiple tokens that they're processing to feel things. So you start moving from a particular token view to an industry-wide view, and you start focusing much more on the use and utility and technology than a particular token and protocol. When you're looking at trying to work with everybody, does that not take more time uh, to develop and work it out? And, and are we just a little bit impatient in the space to wait for actual proper development with these partnerships? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, some would definitely want to partner with you. There's a lot of small cap cryptocurrencies that are looking for traction. They're looking for uh, active partners to really get to the next level. They're very easy to talk to. And then you have some older ecosystems, like, for example, the Litecoin ecosystem, where they really do want to innovate. But unfortunately, because the way things are, it does move slowly. It's the same for Bitcoin itself. Uh, so, you know, there's, a, there's different tempos uh, upon which you can do your innovation. And generally what you do is your first generation, you focus on smaller actors, and then you gradually climb the chain to larger and larger actors. And then eventually you get to a point where you, you get global standards across things. And we are starting to see certain things be standardized in the industry as a whole. Like we're starting to see broad scale adoption of BEC32, which I think is a, a really good address scheme. And then we we're starting to see some crypto standards emerge. And there's even talk about standardizing snark technology because there's just so much of it floating around. There's so many different opinions about that. So it just depends on the academic domain and the engineering domain, and it depends on the use utility domain, but we're still a long way out. And of course, everybody wants you to standardize with their technology. Like if you ask Vitalik about standards, you say, oh yeah, everybody should use the Ethereum virtual machine. As their, uh, as their smart contract platform. Right. So yeah, you see stuff like that floating around and it's like, okay, so you have to sort 
commercial desires away from what is actually best for the ecosystem. And there's actually standards bodies that are working on this. For example, the W3C has the Interledger Committee, the Web Payments Committee, and the W3C is the, the standards body that does web standards in general. So they actually standardize CSS and HTML and these other things. So it's really good to see them get involved there. And there are other things like the Digital Identity Foundation, which is standardizing the representation of identity in our space. And then Microsoft is a member, for example, we are as well. And uh, Hyperledger is another example of a standards group that's, um, that's starting to standardize technology as well, in addition to actual uh, cryptocurrency frameworks. Like you said, you, you're talking about um, satisfying commercial desires. Commercial desires is now. Let's get it done. I want to be using it, and I, I, I want to see what this technology can do. Uh, but you know, actually building out this new technology is taking a while. I mean, we're supposed to look at uh, F 2.0. It's it's going to take a while to actually right. get uh, it, it out. Um, uh, I Cardano uh, is. It took a long time to get to where it is today. But you, I mean, it's doing it properly. But we don't have the, the patience as commercial desires. Is doing it properly going to hurt the industry as a whole because no. both much yeah. time and actually i'd argue we're faster than ethereum in many respects you know it's like oh, you, you are you are but i mean but my question and, is, and we did it properly and that, that's my point it's like look look at f2 they're trying desperately to, to get proof of stake out and uh they've been working at this for actually one year longer than we have been but we followed a very disciplined systematic approach which was very slow to start because it was basic science where we had to define the foundations of a blockchain and that was the gkl model in 2015 and then gradually write paper after paper and go through the peer review process. But the advantage of this was that we kind of knew what the forest looked like. It's kind of like a warp. Uh, you know, you have to do recon first. You kind of have to understand what the, the battleground is going to be. And they say, okay, now that I understand that, I know I, I can make a plan of how am I going to win, what threats are going to come up. Uh, what they did is they just chose to run headlong into it and say, Leroy Jenkins, let's figure this out. <laughs> and they've had a hell of a time and they have all these regressions and they keep having to move dates and so forth. And you know, we've had to move dates too when things came up. Usually they were engineering, not scientific delays. And so now we're in a position where because we're on such strong territory, we really understand the proof of stake design space. We're in a position where we can just do next level stuff. It's very easy to shard mm -hmm. if we want to do that. We can resolve a lot of really harsh theoretical problems that they haven't even thought about, like timekeeping and so forth. Uh, and that's the advantage of doing it right. But you have to be very patient because you have to invest two, three years up front of just basic science and really deep thought before you actually get to the product. Now, to your point, does that hurt your commercial adoption or hinder it? Well, it depends on your perspective. If you think it's moral to build something that blows up in someone else's face, they get the bill and you get the money, then it actually hurts your ability to do that. That's where DeFi is at and the ICO revolution was at and so forth. If you think it's immoral to do that, then it prevents you from doing that because the protocols you release don't blow up in consumers' faces and they don't get the bill for things. And also you have much easier upgrade path. Like when we went from Byron to Shelley, we flipped a switch to turn it on Shelley. Uh, that was six and a half months of hardcore engineering and deep thought went into right. how to do that with the hardcore combinator. But it was a very easy upgrade path. It just worked for a lot of people. They just downloaded new software, and it really wasn't a disruption for our users. And every upgrade we make thereafter will have that same friction-free upgrade because of those early investments we made into those smooth transitions, regardless of the complexity that we introduce. So if you're willing to pay up front for those things, then the consumer is protected, and these uh, landmines don't blow up in people's faces, and you're not running alone naked into the battlefield hoping you don't get shot. You know, you, you know mm -hmm. where you're going, you know what you're doing. 
I'm happy that you brought up DeFi because what we see in DeFi is there's lots of vulnerabilities and yeah. working with cross platforms, working with all time, all different people doing different things and, and employing different concepts to the engineering. Uh, I, I assume that you're going to see a lot more vulnerabilities. Is that not true that you that you would see if you're trying to extend to not everywhere else? Not necessarily, because it depends on how you design your application. So first, uh, it depends on where the vulnerability comes from. Is it a protocol or design problem, or is it an implementation problem? So a lot of cases, we see a lot of protocol and design problems, where regardless of how well implemented it is and how well the code is written and what security audits you do, if you have a mistake in the way the system is designed, people can gain that mistake to maximize their personal return at other people's expenses. Okay, so uh, when you talk cross-platform, that forces you to really think carefully about your design uh, because you're going to be doing multiple implementations of that. So that alone actually helps you get some of your design and, and science bugs out and the way that you think about your DeFi. Second, when you talk about implementation, uh, it depends on the platform's ability to protect or hurt you. So some languages and some platforms, it's like, it's like giving you a razor blade and say, go shave with this. You know, it's, it's, it's a little <laughs> dangerous. You know, other ones, you get safety scissors and they've nerfed everything and they've made it really hard to blow up in your face. Right. So there's all kinds of things like Turing complete versus Turing incomplete, the testing framework and tools, what can and can't run. Like, for example, we rebuilt the Ethereum virtual machine with runtime verification. They created something called Yella, which is based on LLVM. It's Solidity compatible, but uh, when you compile a Solidity contract to it, certain contracts just simply won't compile. For example, the DAO contract won't compile because it's immune to reentrancy bugs. So that's an example of safety scissors and nerfing, and that's a platform specific thing. And that's another example of, of where you can compete. And that's not a standards thing. That's just a USP of your particular platform. You're making an argument that you have a better developer and safer developer experience. And consumers will know that if they use the app on your system, there's a higher probability that that application will be correctly implemented because of the nature of it. This was something that Apple was very disciplined about when they built out their app store. They had very high app standards for both user experience and implementation quality and performance standards. So when people used an Apple application in the app store, it just launched, it just worked. They didn't crash as often. Whereas Android was very loose with these things. So you got a lot of junk applications with poor user experiences and they crashed all the time. And so that was one of the reasons why Apple had such a huge advantage for a long time because of that uh, platform specific thing. But that didn't. But that wasn't something that uh, that forced you as an app developer to only do one thing. It's just you understood that to build on that platform, you you had to adhere to those quality standards. So actually, I think you can have your best of both worlds. The good news is that we've seen a huge amount of advancement in testing. There are great formal frameworks like Firefly. Uh, there are a lot of discussions of formal specification and formal verification, and we have a lot of, of beautiful testing tools, uh, some that you know are very old now, like Truffle and new stuff that's coming that allow smart contract developers to know that their implementations are correct. Uh, that won't solve your protocol design problems, and unfortunately, consumers are seeing that now. The only way you can get around that is hire people who know how to build protocols and go through the peer review process and go through betas and incentivize people to break these things, and that does take years, unfortunately. I think the crux of everything that we're talking about right now, and it boils down to one word that you said about seven minutes ago, and that's morality. You said hire people, you said to test, you said to audit, you said to take your time to make sure that things work properly. The Apple right. model, that goes into morality. And what, then I want you to define what is the proper morality to, 
push through this industry? Okay, well, first off, uh, I, I have this old-fashioned Midwestern belief. I kind of live on the frontier. I got horses and a farm, and it's the old rise together, fall together understanding. It's like, if I'm making money, you should be making money. If I'm losing money, uh, you shouldn't be making money. We lose together, we win together. You know, stick together type of a deal. Because if, if you have aligned financial incentives with your community, uh, then you're probably both going to figure out how to get it done. And you're probably both going to make things work well. Um, where we've had the biggest problems in our industry is where the financial incentives have been misaligned, where I can win and you lose, or you lose and I lose and you win. That's, that's a bad deal for everybody. So that's kind of step one. Step two, you have to ask yourself, what are you actually building this for? I firmly believe that DeFi is a replacement or augmentation of uh, financial services in the developing world. And so you have to ask, well, who are the customers that are coming in? And you need to build DeFi with principles. Specifically, you need to build DeFi where it's open, anybody can use it, and no one is a special actor or has special access to the system. One of the biggest problems with the financial system is that there are special people who always win regardless of what happens. Wall Street mm -hmm. can collapse and certain people always do pretty well about it. And so you don't want to have a system that rewards bad actors for bad behavior or makes super special actors who never can lose and they always get uh, a bailout. So if you're going to build DeFi right, you have to understand the audience it's for and you have to understand that the system has to be egalitarian where uh, no one person has a benefit over somebody else in the system. So these are the two properties I think you have to always think deeply about. And if they're built into the design of the system, you're probably not going to run into a lot of moral hazards. And as a final point, I think you need to have checks and balances and auditability. No man's an island, so you need oversight. And so you always have to ask yourself, if someone makes a claim, no matter who that person is, who's around to validate that? So I got all these scientific papers. We've written 90 of them. I say they work. Well, they got a lot of pretty math and the people who wrote them have PhDs and they're part of great universities. Okay. But how do you know they're right? Well, we submitted them to independent conferences and independent people in a double blind fashion, read and said, there's merit to these things and accepted it for peer review. In some cases, they accept less than 10% of the papers submitted. Okay, so that at least gives you some semblance that there's something novel here that's independent of what we're saying. Same for security audits. An independent firm will take a look at the code, review the code and say, hey, it's secure or we think that it's bug free or we think it's okay. Okay, it doesn't mean it's perfect. There certainly can still be problems and mistakes, but at least it's showing that we're okay with oversight. We're okay with third parties coming in and verifying the claims that we're making. If you walk into an ecosystem where people say, that's not necessary, I'm perfect, that's a huge moral hazard. Because even if they're right the first time, Whatever they're wrong, it goes crazy. Here's a beautiful example of that. Just happened recently. It looks like Giuliani's guys in Pennsylvania made a big mistake when they were scheduling a press conference. And they told everybody it's going to be at the Four Seasons. And then it turned out it was at the Four Seasons landscaping. And they just show up next to a porno shop and a crematorium. And they're doing this press conference, just trying to play it off like this was the plan all along. You know that somebody screwed up. But they have this culture where they can never admit defeat, never admit a mistake, never say, we're sorry, we, we kind of screwed this one up. So they just have to play it like they, they absolutely did want to do a press conference next to a porn shop at a crematorium. 
right? <laughs> so you, you have to avoid that in your culture and you have to avoid that in your organization. You do that by having audit and oversight and transparency and third parties check your work and make sure things are okay. And when you do make a mistake, have the humility to admit that you've made a mistake and screwed up. We've certainly made hundreds of them in the development of Cardano. Are there people that always win in crypto? What was that? You said that there's in the in the traditional financial uh, space that there's people that always win. Are there always people that who always win in crypto? Well, you know, there's certain things that deeply bother me. Like, for example, you know, you have regulators who say, here's the right way of doing things. Register and file. Blockstack, for example, did that. And then you have other projects who raise $4 billion and then they get a slap on the wrist and a small fine could keep all the money. So, you know, when you have bad regulation or strange enforcement of regulation, it does create a situation where moral hazards occur, where the wrong thing to do is incredibly profitable and you get away with it. And I'm very sad to see that starting to happen in our industry because that's what our industry was created to get away from. We literally created cryptocurrencies because we were tired of bankers being able to do this, where they would just go sell these junk financial products, make windfall profits. And then when it blows up in their face, we, the American people, got the bill. You know, and we said, well, this is bullshit. Why, why do they get to keep all the bonuses? Why do they get to keep the hundreds of millions of dollars and so forth and don't go to jail? So now we're starting to see that same type of behavior in certain places um, happen in our industry. And that really deeply disturbs me. But in general, I think that we're going to get it all sorted out over the long, long run. Because at the end of the day, if these systems are built correctly, my belief is they have an evolutionary design advantage over the systems that are built incorrectly correct systems will lose traction and momentum, will ossify and die out. And the vibrant right systems will continue to grow and thrive, which is why Bitcoin is still on top. And it's why very decentralized systems like Ethereum are still doing very well. And it's why Cardano has been surging, you know, despite the fact that we've been moving very systematically and diligently through, uh, because there's principles built into that. And then you project out five, 10, 15 years, I think will be the dominant standard and people like us will be the dominant standard. And this nepotism will gradually fade away and the regulators will have less and less say about it. You know, we, we went basically full circle. And this is my last question. First, before I ask this question, I want to say thank you very much for your time. But we went full circle. We went to companies individually. We went to companies partnering. We went to um, we went to morality. We went to the government now. We, we went to traditional finance. And now I want to bring it back to consumer desires. How does the consumer know about morality? How does the consumer know that you're building an actual a product? How, do you, how does the consumer know that things are being audited? How does the consumer know? Because when it comes to consumer desires, it comes back to the consumer and their education level or their ability to make an educated decision. Yeah, well, there are ratings agencies and scorings that are starting to occur. That's a good first step where you actually have independent groups, whether they be Masari or, you know, Weiss or something that come in and they write these due diligence reports and they say, hey, you know, we've spent the time to look at the code. We have spent the time to talk to the ecosystem. And at the very least, you know, we're in a position to say that this is not one coin. We don't necessarily know if, if these guys are going to win or not, or if there's like super merit behind their science or not. And you're probably right. It's unrealistic to the consumer to understand the vagaries and intricacies of academic peer review. Like what's the difference, for example, between AsiaCrypt and EuroCrypt? They sound the same, but there's actually different prestige levels in those conferences. And uh, there's, they tend to attract slightly different types of papers. Uh, so uh, it's probably unreasonable for the consumer to know that. So you have to ask yourself, what's the team? What's the track record? How long have they been doing this? What are their incentives? Who keeps them in checks and balances? Is it just one entity? Is it a collection of entities? 
Do they have a history of making really crazy statements that have not turned out to be true, or have they been pretty level-headed? For example, look at John McAfee. Um, he has this long track record of making these insane statements, and they never really pan out, right? So even though he has like this great reputation from the early days, although a very questionable one in the middle days, the fact that he's been doing this for a long time tells you that if he tells you something, perhaps there's some dubious credibility behind that. The other thing is there's no rush. Anytime someone tries to rush you and say, you must buy now, you must get on this train now, or else uh, you're just not going to make it. You're, that person's trying to take your money. High, uh, high pressure act now is always a scam. I've never encountered a case where it hasn't been, oh, you missed Tesla. Okay, well, there's the next Tesla. You, you missed this, there's the next thing. You missed the dot-com boom. Well, then Google rose. You missed that, the social media guys rose. And then the next wave of things come. It's like trains. If you miss one, the next one will come. So if it takes you a few years to get comfortable, that's okay. You know, and also moderate your expectations. There is no reality where you get 100X or 1,000X and you are smart. You're lucky. You're damn lucky. <laughs> Sell half of it and pay your taxes on it. Let the rest ride. But you are so lucky, okay? And know the difference between luck and skill. There are very few people floating around in life uh, who have the ability to consistently get 100X. We call them hedge fund billionaires. And they make shows about them and they buy the Mets and these types of things. But for us mere mortals, uh, you know, know the difference between those two. And I think if you keep those basic principles, you'll be all right. You know, take your time, know the difference between being smart and lucky. Diversification is always a big deal. And then, you know, use ratings agencies and look at people's track record and consistency and listen to the things they're saying and listen to their time horizons. You're probably not going to get scammed if people are saying things take five years or 10 years, and here's our roadmap and plan, it might not work, but at least there's probably some merit there. And finally, it doesn't make common sense. So you look at things like intellectual property. I see all these time people create these proprietary blockchains and they're like, it's gonna beat everybody. I'm sorry, if you have a patent and IP, it's not a blockchain, it's a database. Okay, because one person controls it. At any time, Bob can wake up and say, oh, I just want it back. You can't use that anymore because they control the IP mm -hmm. behind that. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to use common sense in these things and say, wait a minute, the whole point is decentralization. Why are you centralizing it? Why does only one group of actors get to control this? What's going on here? So develop those kinds of thinking skills and 95% of the scams go away completely. It doesn't mean you'll make money, but it'll probably protect your downside a lot. Charles Hoskinson, founder Cardano and IOHK. Thank you very much for coming on to talk to us at Decrypt.co. Uh, thank you so much for having me on, Matthew. Cheers. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. Remember, Apple Podcast, subscribe, like, and leave us a comment, please, and share this podcast so people can get the daily news and good conversations too get them acclimated into the crypto space there's a lot of people jumping in right now but i want everybody to realize that if you jump in right now it's kind of like jumping in in my opinion like one thousand dollars back when bitcoin resurged to its previous all-time high imagine if you bought one thousand dollar bitcoin i wonder if people are gonna be saying that at the end of next year going imagine if i bought twenty thousand dollar bitcoin that could be an amazing revolution amazing but let's wait and see until then happy hodling everybody